Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to be previewing the Restoring the West Conference, which will be happening at Utah State University tomorrow and Wednesday. Uh, the title of the conference, Balancing Energy Development and Biodiversity. We all know there's a boom in energy development in many parts of the West. How is that affecting or may affect the well-being of plant and animal species found in the region, from sage grouse to hookless cactus and other plants and animals? Can a proper balance be found? We'll ask you, and we'll weigh in on this with several guests, including Terry Messmer, uh, professor at Utah State University and Wildlife Extension Specialist, Chris Robinson, who's not only a Summit County Council member, but a landowner and energy developer. We'll also be talking with Jim Gaswood from the BLM and Steve Block from Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Access Utah, balancing energy development and biodiversity. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Support is also provided by Utah State University Extension. More information is at usu.edu extension. Welcome to Access Utah. It's Monday, another week of the program. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we're going to start the week out uh, with a balance that we hope to achieve between energy development and biodiversity. That's the topic of the Restoring the West Conference. Uh, it's an annual conference at Utah State University, and it's happening tomorrow and Wednesday on the USU campus. More information uh, at uh, Restoring the West is the uh, RestoringTheWest.org is the website. Uh, these are uh, thorny questions, and uh, the conference will be uh, presenters will be searching for some answers here. Uh, we know that there's an energy boom in uh, many parts of the West. How is that affecting, or will it affect, the well-being of plant and animal species found in the region, from sage grouse to the hookless cactus and others? Uh, can a balance be found? And uh, we bring in in studio here uh, uh, Terry Mesmer, who's a professor at USU and a wildlife extension specialist. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Uh, Terry Mesmer will give the conference introduction. There are no civilians, species at risk, and energy development. We also bring in uh, Chris Robinson, Summit County Council member and landowner. And uh, Chris Robinson is going to be presenting a presentation uh, called Wearing Four Hats, uh, Finding Balance While Being a Rancher mineral energy developer, county councilman, and conservationist. Chris Robinson, pleasure to welcome you in. Thank you. And uh, we welcome in uh, Jim Gaswood as well, Renewable Energy Program Coordinator for the Bureau of Land Management, uh, Utah State Office in Salt Lake City. Jim Gaswood, thanks for joining us. Uh, we don't have Jim on yet, but we uh, believe we do have Steve Block, do we? Yes, good morning. Yes, Steve, uh, Conservation Director, uh, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance in Salt Lake City. Your presentation, Energy Development and Wilderness Preservation as Compatible Goals. Uh, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Let me start with Terry Mesmer. Uh, you're going to give the introduction uh, tomorrow at the conference, sort of uh, uh, giving the lay of the land there. Maybe you could do that for us uh, in brief. It, it, it balance is the goal. Is that achievable? Oh, so you want me to let the cat out of the yeah, bag? Yeah, I do, <laughs> okay. yes. Okay. Yeah, one of, one of the interesting things when... Um, you know, clearly the, the issue of energy development and biodiversity are, 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 are paramount in the West. Uh, 
when we look at biodiversity or, or the issue of endangered species, you know, there, there's, there's, I've never met a landowner. I've, ne- I've never met a, uh, an oil man, an energy man that was interested in wanting to see a species become extinct, you know. And at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, um, uh, you have a society, a, a community that, that values cheap energy. Uh, you know, I myself, you know, will drive around the block because I can get a, a gallon of gas, you know, uh, 10 cents cheaper. And so, uh, and so the question is, is how do you, you balance this need for cheap uh, energy? Uh, because of energy means also jobs, and, and, and there are a lot of other things associated with that. The funding for schools are, are tied to energy development in the case of Utah with some of our state trust lands. And so then the question becomes is how do you, how do you find a balance for both of those? Uh, how do you allow uh, energy development to proceed in a, in a fashion that is, uh, is orderly, that uh, mitigates the impact on uh, species diversity, uh, uh, prevents uh, or, or, or at least not uh, facilitate the, uh, a species becoming endangered. And so, uh, and, and so part of this dilemma has to involve uh, an educated public, a, a realization that um, energy, if, energy is not cheap. If you're going to use energy, you also have to balance that energy use with maybe issues of energy conservation. You have to look at both sides of the equation. Uh, 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 in the surveys we've done of the uh, uh, public in North America and the United States, we've asked about, you know, what are th- what are important in their life, and, and and folks like the idea of knowing that there are wolves in the wilderness, that there are species out there that they may never ever see, but they like knowing the fact that these species exist in some type of uh, natural state, in some type of wild state, and so. Uh, uh, one of the things that has to happen as part of this whole dialogue is people have to be aware of the trade-offs, the balances, the things that can happen. And then in knowing that, if there are certain best management practices that we need to implement on the landscape, those things are going to cost, and those costs have to be incurred by someone. And ultimately, that's going to be the consumer. And so, so, so part of my introduction is going to focus on this issue that, in fact, Everybody is involved in this process, and just because you live in New York City or you live in California or in Salt Lake and, and you may never see a sage grouse or you may never see an animal in the wild, the fact you use and consume energy, uh, uh, you do have an impact, and you're, you're part of the problem as well as part of the solution, Tom. That, that, that's why you're titled There Are No Civilians or we're all involved, whether we want to or not. Right. We bring right. in uh, Steve Blocknick, Conservation Director for Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. I uh, wonder, from your point of view, where, where are the danger points, where are the touch points uh, that, that we ought to be talking about and trying to achieve the balance? Well, I think what we've seen here in Utah is that, uh, though it's, um, it's certainly elusive, that uh, in some examples uh, we've managed to defy uh, conventional wisdom and found some opportunities where uh, conservation groups like the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, uh, representatives from the oil and gas industry like uh, Anadarko uh, Petroleum uh, or the Bill Barrett uh, Corporation, the state of Utah, the federal government have been able to find uh, some consensus. And I think what that's largely looked like um, uh, our zoning decisions are, are um, working to identify large swaths of public land uh, that will be 
preserved for species, uh, for biodiversity, for all the benefits we're learning about uh, that come from uh, from intact systems, while at the same time allowing opportunities uh, uh, for uh, well for the infill of existing fields and for the expansion uh, of some of those fields. So I think from my perspective, we hear a lot about how that's not possible. Uh, and what we found here in Utah is that by rolling up our sleeves and sitting around the table, uh, we've been able to find some opportunities uh, to make those things work. And is, I mean, that's very hopeful, um, but as the energy boom continues and the pressure for more energy increases, uh, it, it, will that continue to be a workable solution? Well, uh, it's hard to look into the crystal ball, but I think that, um, you know, in part that's why SUA uh, and other members of the conservation community advocate for long-term protection of federal lands. That's why, uh, you know, we're motivated by uh, the preservation of those intact systems as federally designated wilderness, uh, something that only the Congress uh, can do. Um, but, I, you know, the role that the state of Utah plays in the larger energy scene, um, it's not insignificant, but it's fairly modest. Uh, and so I think we need to be making some of these decisions, uh, certainly to keep in mind, you know, local economies and uh, things like that, but at the same time recognizing that our role as a state is, is fairly limited on both the national and certainly on an international scale, uh, while at the same time we harbor uh, very important species that you mentioned, sage-grouse, the hookless uh, cactus, that you know, these wide open spaces allow for the movement uh, of species back and forth. And so it is finding that balance to preserve those large swaths of land um, while still allowing for a reasonable amount of development. If you just joined us, we're talking about balancing energy development and biodiversity. And uh, we're previewing the Restoring the West Conference that's happening on the campus of Utah State University Tuesday and Wednesday. You can find out more information at restoringthewest.org. This program is sponsored by USU Extension Services. We have with us in studio Terry Messmer, a USU professor and wildlife extension specialist. Uh, we were just talking right there with Steve Block, conservation director for Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. We're going to be bringing in Jim Gaswood, the Renewable Energy Program Coordinator for the BLM, Utah State Office in Salt Lake City, and Chris Robinson, Summit County Council member and landowner in the Park City area. You're welcome to join this conversation, which will be running until uh, 9.30 at uh, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can email us uh, at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Let me bring in uh, Chris Robinson. Uh, in your presentation, I guess... Uh, is talking about your life as wearing four hats. What are, what are those four hats? Well, as you mentioned, I'm on the Summit County Council. I'm also uh, the vice chair of the Nature Conservancy and have been on the board since we've had one and been involved for over 20 years. I uh, am the CEO of a company known as Ensign Ranches, and, and we uh, own large swaths of land in Summit and, and in northeastern Utah and in Box Elder in Tooele County and, and run a livestock and uh, operation and a big game hunting program and, you know, are concerned about 
biodiversity biodiversity and conservation values. Uh, we're also actively trying to pursue a wind farm on portions of our property in eastern Summit County, and we own mineral rights under uh, large swaths of um, Rich County and some in Summit County that are also happen to be areas where, especially on the Desert Livestock Ranch, Desert Land and Livestock, where some of the best sage grouse habitat and, and best populations exist. And so uh, you can see this. I'm, I'm looking at this from a lot of angles. We're, as a company and as a person, we're very concerned about. Uh, we love biodiversity on our lands, we, and we work hard to take care of them for long-term uh, sustainable returns. And so we're always concerned about, you know, not mining our resources, and, and we love the fact that we think more is better, more species. And, and, and so we're in a bit of a quandary now as we, as we look at the potential listing of the sage-grouse and, and, and Governor Herbert's efforts in convening this working group uh, to come up with some recommendations to preempt the listing. And so uh, unlike what Steve was talking about, uh, we're talking about private lands, mostly in Summit County and in these areas that I'm, to which I'm referring, and, and the, uh, coming up with, with some rules that are instituted at the local level, at the county level, that will deal with how energy development and how other forms of surface occup occupation or disturbance will be allowed in order to protect these habitats and uh, and finding that balance. And I mean, I applaud very much the work that SUA has done with uh, Bill Barrett and Anna Darko, and I think there is great opportunity to do do a lot more of that. That's the kind of business I love seeing. Um, but I think where we need to be very careful now is that we get a plan in place that allows that kind of thing to happen and that will allow us to protect the birds and other elements of biodiversity while at the same time developing the minerals or our natural resources and allowing private property rights to be respected. And that, that's a very fine balance. And uh, that's, that's what we, we need to work a lot harder on because I think that the recommendations that have been given by the governor's working group so far leave a lot to be desired. Uh, it's it's a good start, but it's not a consensus document yet and, and has a lot, it's fraught with a lot of uh, concern. We were uh, t talking there with Chris Robinson, uh, who is Summit County Council member, landowner, and uh, mineral energy developer, conservationist as well. We're going to bring in uh, Jim Gaswood, but first we have a caller. Let's bring in Charles in Logan. Charles, welcome to the program. Thanks for calling. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's always my purpose to bring up the thing that never seems to get brought up in the discussions of energy within Utah, and that's, of course, greenhouse gases. You know, we've just had a very intense wildfire season that was going to be once every 10 years and then once every five years and then once every two years. You know, I mean, the endangered species here, what about people? Okay, I, I don't know who wants to, among my guests, wants to tackle that. Uh, Professor? Yeah, Ch yeah, Chuck, this is uh, Terry Mesmer. Hey, what you bring up is, is really on the minds of a lot of people. You know, it, it hasn't been mentioned in this discussion to date, but, but uh, you know, our research suggests that if there are uh, 
changes in climate uh, in, in, in Utah, what will happen is, uh, in the case of sage-grouse, we can see some, uh, uh, some effect on, ch on chick survival rates, which ultimately means, you know, if, if we have reduced chick survival in these populations, uh, that's one of the drivers that move these populations forward. And if that happens in response to uh, more uh, of the, uh, the dry winters or open winters or things along that line, uh, then uh, you know, yeah, there'll be there'll be a, there'll be a species impact, and so uh, you know, this discussion regarding uh, you know the effect of climate change and things along that line—that's part of the discussion that have been ongoing and, and have been talked about in the in the governor's task force and are on the minds of all of the speakers that we've got here today. The the fact it it was not mentioned is uh, it does not mean that it's a uh, it, it's not an important factor. It's something that we all think about. We. Uh, we we look for better options for, and that's where some of these best management practices, and including uh, you know some of the zoning issues that uh, that Steve talked about, are going to be important in trying to mitigate mitigate those things. And so uh, there's no easy solution to that, but 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 to have you know that you know this committee and this symposium, there are speakers that will bring this up, and it'll be part of the dialogue also. Well. If I can just jump in for a moment. This yes, is, go ahead. Uh, yeah, this is Steve Block. Well, and I think that's that's an excellent point, and it's actually a reason that, um, that so many of us were frustrated with the Bureau of Land Management and the Interior Department as they uh, put into place several of these uh, resource management plans. These are land use, uh, series of land use plans for much of southern and eastern Utah that were finalized at the end of the Bush administration. Um, uh, that they are you know, very 30,000-foot landscape zoning decisions, and those plans gave very minimal uh, treatment to you know, the issue of greenhouse gases and uh, climate change. And I, and I think what that does is, is it forces us to deal with it on a more site-specific issue, uh, on a site-specific basis, which is which is fine, and I think we can do that or we can try to do that, um, as uh, Terry was just saying. But we really need more leadership from the Interior Department and, of course, from the White House in making this a, uh, something that gets addressed not only on a project-by-project -project basis but on a landscape level. Well, let's bring in Jim Gaswood. Uh, Jim Gaswood, apologize for uh, getting to you a little later. We have a, a big panel here. Uh, but, uh, by the way, welcome to the program. Appreciate you coming on. You betcha, Tom. And it's uh, Gazewood. Uh, Gazewood, okay. If, uh, if I might, uh, let me uh, go on and add to what Steve had mentioned. Uh, the Bureau, with regard to our land use plans and projects that are proposed, and I myself carry, uh, I've dedicated my career, 30 years as a petroleum engineer, heavily involved with large-scale oil and gas development throughout the Rockies. And I can share with you this, that with regard to air quality and airshed management, it's actually been a very active portion of the Bureau's efforts to bring these projects in play and to effectively assess the impacts of air quality and view sheds in valleys like uh, the upper Green River Basin, the Pinedale, Jonah, and uh, uh, Pinedale Anticline areas of Pinedale, uh, northwest Colorado, the Uinta Basin. We've capitalized in cooperative efforts with uh, agencies, and it's actually been at the direction of EPA when they've reviewed major project EISs, and they've recognized shortcomings with regard to the impacts of air quality at air sheds, where air quality modeling and now air impact 
uh, mitigation, and we're recognizing the aspect of the need for discharge permits when we're into the concept of uh, large-scale use of diesel uh, prime movers in these fields to uh, compress, to push natural gas, to frack wells. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of work that's going on, and and back to Terry in the venue, uh, these types of things will be shared and brought to light. Uh, they're not the kinds of things that we're sidestepping, and it's important here, I think, as as um, as uh, Chris Robinson brought, uh, brought out, and as well as Steve, the aspect here is to, to get the public, to get stakeholders up to a point of knowledge, uh, an understanding of what's being done, what can be done, uh, so that as a collective group, a decision can be made uh, that can help mitigate, minimize these impacts, uh, be proactive because some of these prescriptions will change through time. We learn as we go, and that's an important part of this. So the key back to uh, this whole realm is, you know, the aspect of master development plans, understanding what's proposed by the industry through these developments. Uh, a lot of times they don't know. Uh, they may have a best sense right now based on current assessment as they do more work. As an example, like at oil and gas, they may find they need to downspace do more intensive development so this stuff can change. Uh, there's the need to minimize surface disturbance out there so it avoids impacting habitat, consolidation of facilities, moving into corridor types of designs so that, uh, as an example, where we're drilling multiple wells from a pads, uh, we've got well locations that we're drilling 30 wells from a single pad. Uh, northwest Colorado, there's a pad up there that's got 80 wells on it. Th- this technology is here. Uh, the industry can capitalize the cost if they know this right up front. Uh, in some ways, too, these improved practices do save money. If you're going to consolidate infrastructure, this is a good example. You're not building uh, 32 separate pads. You're building a single pad. So the, there's there's many things here, uh, Tom, back to you with regard mm-hmm. to what can be done to minimize these impacts, deal with things like climate change, air quality, uh, et cetera. Let me uh, go back to Steve Block. Um, you, you heard there from uh, Jim Gazewood from the BLM that uh, they – they are taking into account air shed, air quality. Um, uh, uh, d- does that satisfy SUA in terms of uh, you're talking about that you, you have to go beyond the the zoning, beyond the resource management plans, because you're not satisfied that uh, greenhouse gases are being taken into account? Well, I, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's it. I'm not satisfied. I think, you know, what the Bureau's done, I mean, there's two ways that they assess uh, what's happening on the public lands. Uh, and there's about 23 million acres of land that's managed by the BLM in Utah. And, you know, as I said, the first is this landscape level. Um, and that's where I think we really found missing the analysis on impacts from climate change. Uh, you know, not that, uh, with just a few exceptions, that the Bureau really did not want to undertake the necessary uh, modeling uh, for air quality impacts. And so what we're seeing is that they are doing it at the site-specific stage. Sometimes it's sufficient. Sometimes we have uh, concerns about that. But I guess my point was that um, at those land use plans is where the Bureau makes very significant decisions about what sorts of uses are appropriate on the public lands, how much oil and gas leasing and development are we going to allow uh, to move ahead on the public lands and, you know, how much off-road vehicle use we're going to allow, things like that. And uh, by skirting the issue of climate change at that 30,000 foot at the landscape level, we are forced to tackle it on a project-by-project basis. And I think that means we don't have the sort of overarching 
policy guidance, the overarching decisions that uh, are are necessary, I think, to uh, to really take into account how significant the changing climate is. We are talking about balancing energy development and biodiversity. That is the theme of the Restoring the West Conference, which will be happening at Utah State University uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. More information at restoringthewest.org. This program sponsored by USU Extension Services. And we have with us Terry Messmer from Utah State University, Chris Robinson, Summit County Council member, Jim Gazewood, Renewable Energy Program Coordinator from the Bureau of Land Management, and Steve Block, Conservation Director, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. We're going to extend this conversation for a, a bit more, some more issues to be covered here. We're going to take a brief break. And uh, when we come back more on balancing energy development and biodiversity, I want to narrow this down. Uh, to a, a species that's potentially greatly affected. That's the sage-grouse. I'm looking at a picture of the sage-grouse here on the website. I've never seen one in, in the wild. Many of you probably have. Uh, by the way, you can uh, join this conversation. We hope that you will at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. This program is sponsored by USU Extension Services. More on balancing uh, energy development and biodiversity following the break. Support for this program is provided by the Utah State University Extension. Information is at usu.edu extension. Hi, this is Blair Larson, host of Fresh Folk. Get ready for a night of new releases in blues this week with featured albums from Nashville artist Etta Britt and the New York-based Ellie Winninger. I'll also play tunes from new albums by the Cashbox Kings, Peter Carp and Sue Foley, and the John Oates Band, to name just a few. Join me this Saturday at 8 p.m. for Fresh Folk on Utah Public Radio. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Cash Valley Center for the Arts, celebrating 20 years this season with the theatrical touring production John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men by The Acting Company. November 16th at 7.30. Ticket information is at ellenecclestheater.org. Thanks for staying with us for Access Utah. On this Monday, we're balancing energy development and biodiversity. At least we're uh, trying to find that balance. That's the theme of the conference, Restoring the West Conference on the USU campus, a two-day conference on Tuesday and Wednesday. And this program is sponsored by USU Extension Services. Uh, let me turn to uh, Terry Messmer again, the USU Wildlife Extension Specialist and, uh, and Professor. One species that seems to be talked about a lot when you talk about balancing biodiversity and energy development is, is the sage-grouse. Right, that, that's correct. The, uh, the greater sage-grouse, that's uh, a population that occurs in 11 western states. And uh, I, I often joke with some of my uh, energy colleagues that they don't need petroleum engineers. Uh, all they need to do is map sage-grouse selects and drill there, and they'll, they'll find the resources they need. They could save money on all the, these engineers. But having said that, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek, uh, uh, sage-grouse populations are very closely tied to sagebrush habitats, and, and, and that's an important part of their life cycle. Uh, they need, they're a landscape species, and so as Steve talked earlier, they, they need large contiguous blocks of habitat to sustain their life cycle, and, and, and sagebrush is paramount. They do need sagebrush habitat uh, through the winter. That's primarily what they eat, and in some cases they can actually gain weight eating sagebrush during the winter. 
the the problem comes in is when we look at at sage grouse is is how do they respond to these land uses on the landscape and 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 again sage grouse are relatively long lived species and so you know the uh, the population what drives population growth in these areas is that survival of that adult hen and the survival of her chicks and so these hens pretty much tie themselves to a given location and so if there's a land use action or, or, or land use treatment, you know, they may be able to sustain themselves in that area. But what, what happens is that subsequent generations, you know, those generations may avoid areas that are disturbed and they may move out to areas which are less preferred. And in, in doing so, uh, their survival, their production is, is, is impacted. And so the focus of, of this initiative regarding sage grouse in, in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decision, there were two items that really jumped out. One was habitat loss and fragmentation. Uh, the second one was the, the lack of the mechanisms to protect uh, that from reoccurring on the landscape. Um, we probably aren't going to see a lot of these fragmented habitats being reconnected just based on what's happened in the, in, in the landscape. But what we still do have is we have opportunities to protect and, 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 and maintain the function of some of these larger landscapes uh, where we've got birds, uh, uh, the concept of protecting the best of the best and, and, and allowing for you know, some of that processes to go on has, has been kind of the theme that's been heard west, west wide in, in looking at trying to balance some of the issues with energy development and sage grouse populations. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could expand on that theme, Jim Gateswood. Uh, sage grouse seems to be a, a sort of a touchstone species, and we're talking about this this balance. And you're going to talk at the conference about best management practices. I wonder if you could uh, talk for us a little bit about best management practices when it comes to this species. Well, and and Terry just hit on a couple of key items here, and and with regard to the the services uh, uh, primary criteria, and that has to do with minimizing impact. Uh, destruction. So uh, a large part of what we're going to be talking about is uh, to avoid that uh, altogether. Uh, you know, it's important when we've got large-scale energy development, and a good example here in Utah, as Steve pointed out earlier, uh, downspacing, uh, infill drilling. Well, one of the things we want to do is uh, describe, and we will with the, the BMPs, about minimizing that surface disturbance so we're not taking away that native habitat. Uh, using existing infrastructure. I I briefly touched on that earlier with regard to multiple wells from a single pad. Uh, Also, to add to uh, uh, what Terry brought to light, the aspect of lex and brooding season brings in the aspect of noise and other impacts that could impact uh, uh, productivity, uh, viability of those species. So the aspects of minimizing traffic uh, to and through where there's existing infrastructure by consolidating facilities so that uh, production can be put into uh, uh, batteries or uh, environments that uh, minimize the need for trucks to continuously travel back and forth, uh, remote, uh, the use of remote technology so that uh, equipment can be monitored uh, from dispatch centers to avoid, again, uh, uh, putting the types of disturbance that would out there that would impact those species in addition to, uh, you know, uh, the disturbance of the habitat itself. Uh, so we'll highlight uh, those types of circumstances, and, uh, uh, you know, these things have come through time. Uh, the key now is uh, we're, as an example, with uh, at least the public land management that BLM has been involved with, we've always uh, given uh, uh, protection with regard to the sage-grouse, but now the question is 
uh, as Terry brought out and, and the science has been brought to bear is the need for greater distance. We've always had buffers around leks and certain timing restrictions of the year. So now it's important for us to to revisit those. And we've uh, had internally here a, a very substantial amount of work uh, nationally within the Bureau, working with the agencies that have been described uh, so that we can bring into play policies, uh, working with the industry uh, that uh, can help us do these kinds of things, but then also, as uh, Chris pointed out, make sure that we protect existing or valid rights that are out there as well. So it's definitely a balancing act, and again, we'll touch on those relative to the conference. Thank you, Tom. Uh, and we're talking about restoring the West Conference. It's happening at USU uh, tomorrow and Wednesday. Uh, balancing Energy Development and Biodiversity and RestoringTheWest.org is the website. We're talking with Jim Gazewood, Renewable Energy Program Coordinator with the Bureau of Land Management, Chris Robinson, Summit County Council Member, Terry Messmer, USU Professor and Wildlife Extension Specialist, and Steve Block, Conservation Director with Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. You're welcome to join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com or at 1-800-826-1495. Let me turn back to Chris Robinson. Uh, you mentioned earlier, I want to follow up, uh, there's a uh, process uh, ongoing at the state level, the Governor's Energy um, c- Committee, uh, or Task Force, I think it's what, it, what it's called. And you mentioned, uh, Chris Robinson, that you, you felt that uh, left a little bit to be desired. Where, where specifically? Well, what what's happened is in February of this year, the Governor convened a bunch of stakeholders, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, BLM, uh, NRCS, Commissioner of Agriculture, State Energy Office, CITLA, County Commissioners, different representatives of industry, representative from the Nature Conservancy, and so forth. And they've been working uh, since for the last like eight months in order to come up with some recommendations to the governor that would then be formulated into a statewide sage grouse conservation plan that would dovetail with what Wyoming has done and Idaho is doing as well, the theory being that if the states take the lead, they will preempt the the Fish and Wildlife Service from acting, from listing the species. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the problems that I see with the plan are that um, it's it's taken, uh, like, a, a huge share of Summit in Rich County and declared the whole thing habitat, and then had it has uh, a no, no disturbance, surface disturbance above five percent, and some mitigation requirements, and it and it expects the counties to then grab a hold and modify their general plans to incorporate all of this, and the counties to provide incentives for for doing you know for for conservation and so, a lot of unfunded kind of mandates or not or encouragements I'll call them, and uh, I. I, I, I think it, it's uh, it's too broad a stroke at this point, and it's uh, in in huge swaths of of these counties of the I think 20 out of the 29 counties have have large sage grouse management areas. In fact, this this recommendation identifies about a dozen or so sage grouse management areas, and in those areas, um, vast areas are vast acreages are deemed habitat, and I think it needs to be broken down into different types of habitat. Uh, and the, the ability to mitigate is 
drastically reduced when all your land is habitat. Is you know, so you're told not to disturb habitat. You can mitigate that almost your whole area is habitat. There's it, just there's a lot of I don't want to go into a lot of the details because it's it's not uh, our time won't allow that. But I think where it was left is that at our last meeting a week or so ago is that the state. Uh, this group is going to convene a subcommittee, and, they, and I'm going to be a part of that to try to come to some consensus, so that the, the governor's office can really can really come up with a plan that might have buy-in by a lot of parties. Some fear that the state's plan that 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 cure is worse than the federal disease. In other words, that maybe we'd be better off to let the, the feds list it instead of coming up with this plan that may be very hard to implement at the local level and may be very onerous on on and uh, taking of private property rights. Let me so turn it, to, uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. And then no, I'll, I'm, I'm done. Okay. Uh, I want to turn to Terry Messmer. You, you, uh, Professor, you're also on the task force, aren't you? Yes, I am, and, and, I, and I do appreciate, uh, um, you know, Chris's uh, comments on it. The uh, Ultimately, the devil is in the detail. When we look at Utah populations, I spent the last 18 years, uh, dozens of graduate students, trying to map the ecology of uh, sage-grouse populations in Utah, and, and our colleagues at BYU have also done some considerably really good work to, to kind of lay that template out there and to define how these populations use these landscapes. Uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, a, a lot of Utah sage-grouse habitat, are, are, there occurs a lot of natural fragmentation, as, as Councilman Robinson talked about, where we've actually got populations that will fly over non-habitat areas to move from breeding areas to wintering areas and things along that line. And so, but they actually go through a corridor that, that you know, we don't know all the exact mechanisms within that corridor. We don't know the timing because of, um, we, we don't have the GPS data. Um, most of the work we've done in Utah with uh, sage-grouse uh, ecology, mapping this ecology has been the standard VHF callers. And so we can't get that instantaneous time and point. But, but having said that, we do know considerable amount about the populations and how they move through the landscape. Uh, uh, one of the things uh, uh, Councilman Robinson talked about was this subcommittee that uh, once the governor's plan goes forward and identifies, you know, some general guidelines in terms of these are the areas that have our, our best populations and are the populations that have the greatest chance of persisting uh, through time, then what will happen is as we go back and look at those maps, we'll refine habitat and non-habitat areas within those uh, within those landscapes but the, but the key thing again is we have to we have to recognize and acknowledge that these species use the landscape they don't use a, you know a quarter section of land they use they use thousands and thousands of acres in the in in their daily uh, in their movements in their seasonal movements uh, one of the things uh, the councilman mentioned about was the 5% restriction. Uh, uh, this 5% restriction is based on research which was done in Montana looking at coal bed methane, and, and it indicated that sage-grouse populations can withstand a certain level of disturbance within a given area. And so if you look at, for example, a section of habitat, 640 acres, uh, a 5% disturbance in that area was found to have no effect on that population using those areas. But then the question becomes on, on how do you translate that cumulatively across the landscape? And, and you look at those, those provisions. 
One of the things that the, the committee did look at is there's also the possibility to, to gain habitat. In other words, there's areas out there right now in Utah by conducting the appropriate management treatments, the appropriate land use treatments that we might actually grow grouse, gain new areas that can be used to offset future disturbances. And so there's a lot of things that still have to be worked, worked at, but the concept, the overall concept of the plan is, is trying to protect the larger scale of landscapes in such a ways that we can preserve and we can allow this population to continue. Uh, you know, we can still have productive populations at the same time we can allow for orderly development and economic growth. Unlike some other states, um, uh, Utah, about half of our sage grouse population is privately owned. Mm -hmm. And so that has to be a major consideration on how we're going to be working with private landowners and what kind of incentives might we use to, to work with these landowners to, to allow them to move forward. In Utah, as in some of the other states, we've been involved in a local working group process where we've got, we've got 11 statewide local working groups that have voluntarily set up management plans for sage grouse. And they've kind of done their own mapping and they've kind of looked at areas and they've gone ahead and they've done some really fabulous things in terms of sage grouse conservation. But the problem with that, that process, it's voluntary. And under the Endangered Species Act and under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decision regarding the candidate status, voluntary is nice, but voluntary doesn't provide that regulatory assurances for protection of the species into the future. And so that's one measure that the Utah plan will have to address if it's going to be accepted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in addressing that consideration. Let me turn next to uh, Steve Block. Uh, I wonder, uh, does, does SUA have a position on, on this? Is, is listing, federal listing of sage-grouse the, the best way to go? Well, I don't know that we have a hard and fast uh, take on whether listing is the best route. I, I would take a little bit of issue when I heard, uh, I think from Jim, uh, at the start of this conversation that the BLM is, uh, you know, actively working on this. They as I'm sure they are, but if you look at why did the Fish and Wildlife Service move ahead uh, and say that listing was appropriate, it cited specifically the lack of management in the Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service uh, management plans, and that's to some extent why we are where we are now. Um, and then it, it, I would just uh, note also with regard to the governor's uh, task force on the sage-grouse uh, as you heard from Chris, there is a representative from the Nature Conservancy, but there's no one else in the conservation uh, community, the nonprofit side. Um, but of course, there's several representatives of, uh, from uh, from the oil and gas sector, uh, as well as state and county and local uh, uh, folks who are there. So I feel like we've been a bit on the outside looking in. Um, but I don't think we have a hard and fast view. Uh, is federal listing the only or best course of action. Um, I'm not sure, as you've heard um, from all the speakers, that, uh, or certainly the last two, that um, where we are right now is going to do enough to protect the bird. And uh, we certainly have concerns with uh, some of the rhetoric that the Uinta Basin would end up as a sacrifice zone, uh, for, lack, uh, for lack of a better term, which I think has been talked about um, more and more in the past few months as the task force reached uh, its conclusions and forwarded its recommendations along to the governor was to uh, 
do the least to protect the bird in that area. And then we have some other concerns about the bird in some of its furthest southernmost extension. Um, there's a proposed expansion of a uh, uh, of a coal mine that's just outside of Bryce Canyon National Park, where it's the southernmost extension of the greater sage-grouse in North America. Um, not sure where the state uh, is going to be going with that as well. Mm-hmm. We just have a few minutes uh, left. I want uh, everyone on the panel to... Uh, to get a final word on on this the, this balance and maybe pull it uh, back out to the to the macro level the balance between uh, energy development and uh, and biodiversity and uh, maybe go in reverse order let uh, Steve Block have the first first word in this final statements here <laughs> well I mean like I said at the, at the outset I really uh, think that it is possible to find this kind of balance um, it's obviously not easy as you've heard from everybody uh, it involves a lot of different stakeholders um, uh, I think we're, well, I feel like we're cautiously optimistic that um, we have managed to defy the conventional wisdom here in Utah by um, finding some opportunities for common ground, making some of the decisions that, uh, as I said earlier, amount to uh, uh, zoning on on, the, on federal lands and on, on a larger scale. Um, and that is as we continue as SUA and the conservation community look at energy development in Utah, both on the renewable side and uh, conventional oil and gas, we're going to continue to look for those opportunities, uh, recognizing that as things stand right now, uh, fossil fuel development is certainly an integral part of both the state's economy and um, uh, on the national level, I think as Terry said at the outset, we all drive our cars and you know, heat our homes in Utah here with natural gas, but that doesn't mean we need to do things the old way, and we're looking to uh, uh, constantly improve on those. Let's turn to uh, Jim Gazewood from the BLM. Uh, some final thoughts on, on how best to achieve the balance. Well, uh, I, I, I'm a strong believer, in, and I've witnessed on numerous occasions that we can, in fact, uh, do the development and do it in a fashion that uh, can meet the requirements to protect. Uh, I think the biggest part here is is to, you know, identify areas of sensitivity, identify the conflicts that we see with regard to proposed development, and then work towards solutions. And uh, those solutions have evolved uh, uh, some over decades, others more recently. And, uh, you know, it's part of the Bureau's mission with regard to being able to support multiple uses of the public land. That's the important thing here. We've had the span with regard to conservation, as Steve's put it out, and then as Councilman Robertson has brought to light the aspect associated with uh, existing and valid uh, rights out there. Uh, it's important for us to recognize that we're really going to be dealing with this kind of these kinds of actions between those two realms. Some cases, conservation will probably carry key. Others, you know, a big question now, uh, valid existing rights with regard to the Uinta Basin, uh, the types of projects that are in, in play. Uh, these are very difficult issues that, as an example, the uh, the sage-grouse uh, working collaboration here under the governor's direction are, are wrestling with. So the Bureau's committed to support these ends and, and take these prescriptions and work them towards uh, energy development, both uh, conventional, unconventional, and renewable, uh, uh, within the, uh, the public lands in Utah. Let's turn to uh, Chris Robinson next, uh, Summit County Council member, also a landowner. You're sort of in the, in the middle on all of these issues. What's your final thoughts on achieving balance between energy development and biodiversity? Well, I, I think it's the right direction. I think, we can, I, can, I think we can defy conventional wisdom 
and I applaud the governor's efforts specifically on this sage grouse task force. I think that, you know, I keep coming back to the sage grouse because so much of the land, like, like Terry said, you know, forget the geologists, look for the sage grouse, and then you'll find the energy, the fossil fuels. I think uh, this is going to be a game changer in how we deal with sage grouse, whether it's listed or whether there's a state plan, and it's going to affect not just conventional fossil fuel development, but also uh, renewable energy in a big way. And so I think it's I think it's very possible to come up with a, a state plan that finds that, that sweet spot balance, that respects private property, allows our economy to grow, protects the bird and the natural environment, and protects other biodiversity. And, that, and that's my goal. I mean, I, as a as a landowner, as a conservationist, as a county council member, I'm going to work hard to try to find that. I don't think we've found it yet in the draft recommendations. And uh, and so there's a lot more work to be done, but I'm still hopeful that it can be done. And if not, we'll have to take the federal consequences. And uh, just have about a minute left, uh, so uh, we'll give uh, Professor Messmer the last word. So, so Tom, you can see uh, the title of my presentation is There Are No Civilians. This discussion probably highlighted a lot of those concerns and questions. Uh, uh, I am optimistic. I think uh, given the, the, the forces that have been marshaled, given the people, the participants, the stakeholders that are involved in the process, uh, I think there are solutions out there. These solutions are, are probably going to task our, our, our innovative skills. Uh, we're going to have to come up with some things that are that I think are going to be unique and novel. But at the same time as we do that, I think there's strong recognition of the fact that we have to monitor those outcomes, that we just can't implement something on the landscape and walk away from it. And so all of the groups here today, all of the discussion is that once we do something on the landscape that we're not done yet. I mean, the idea is we need to track that and we need to follow that through time to see exactly how it resulted in protection of the species, uh, protection of biodiversity, but also how it affected the communities uh, that were involved that depend on these resources. And our thanks to uh, Terry Messmer, USU professor and wildlife extension specialist, Chris Robinson, Summit County Council member and landowner in the Park City area, Jim Gazewood, Renewable Energy Program Coordinator with the Bureau of Land Management, and Steve Block, Conservation Director, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Thanks so much to all of you. And the conference is happening Tuesday and Wednesday on the Utah State University campus, Restoring the West Conference. Subtitle is Balancing Energy Development Biodiversity. Our thanks to USU Extension Services. And thanks for listening. Support for this program was provided by Utah State University Extension. More information is at usu.edu slash extension. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by USU's Dining Services, presenting the Artist Block Cafe and Bakery at the bottom of the ramp in the Fine Arts Visual Building, featuring the non-sandwiches. Information is at usu.edu slash dining. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Hi, this is Mark Larez Casanova from the Utah Master Naturalist Program at Utah State University Extension. It's difficult to visit a landscape in the West without encountering cheatgrass. While cheatgrass's small stature might make it hard to notice, it's impossible to forget its sharp, spiny seeds. One hike through a cheatgrass meadow can render a good pair of socks unsalvageable. 
Although cheatgrass, a non-native grass scientifically known as Bromus tectorum, is an annual grass, germinating, growing, producing seeds, and dying each year, it is particularly effective at colonizing disturbed areas because it grows and produces seeds much earlier in the spring than many perennial native grasses. Cheatgrass monopolizes water and nutrients by germinating and establishing itself during the previous fall and winter, when many native plants have become dormant. Over time, cheatgrass has become the dominant ground cover in many of Utah's sagebrush ecosystems. The dense, dry, fine stalks of cheatgrass, which sets seeds and dries out by June, are particularly flammable fuel for wildfires. Fire roars through the carpet-like cover of cheatgrass, and wildfires are now at least twice as frequent as they were in the 1800s. This has caused a loss of sagebrush habitat that is particularly important to a wide variety of wildlife. More frequent fires create an even greater challenge for rare species such as the black-footed ferret and the desert tortoise to survive. Native grasses are slower to recover from fire, and cheatgrass is particularly effective at recolonizing burned areas. Utah State University researchers Dr. Peter Adler and Aldo Campagnoni have found that reduced snowpack and warmer temperatures promote the growth of cheatgrass, which could potentially increase its distribution and fire risk into previously colder areas of Utah. Researchers and managers are continually working to find ways to control cheatgrass in Utah. Effective control usually involves a combination of mechanical pulling or tilling, grazing, burning, spraying with a chemical herbicide, and replanting with native grasses. USU researchers Dr. Eugene Shoup and his former graduate student Jan Summerhays found that applying a pre-emergent herbicide to prevent the germination of cheatgrass seeds, as well as temporarily limiting nitrogen in the soil, gave native grasses and perennials a better chance of establishing. When faced with such a large management problem in Utah and throughout the West, we can use all of the helpful tools we can get. For Wild About Utah, I'm Mark Larez Casanova. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Support for Utah Public Radio is also provided by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, celebrating 20 years this season with the Broadway touring production of A Chorus Line. November 12th and 13th at 7.30. Ticket information is at ellenecclestheater.org. KUSRHD1 Logan, KUSKHD1 Vernal, KUSLHD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSUFMHD1 Logan.